quick note on this episode, we recorded this episode in front of a live studio audience a few weeks prior to Stephen Sondheim's passing. So if it feels like we're skipping over a tribute to him, that was never our intention. This is a Sondheim standing podcast, and we both have been incredibly impacted by him and his work, and hopefully that is reflected in this conversation. Yeah, it's probably for the best that we had to do this before he died, because I think the entire podcast would have been uh, one or both of us weeping profusely for an hour and a half. So maybe it's a good thing. It would have been just a puddle of tears delivered straight to your ear. Yeah, just an incoherent mumbling. And I know that because that's basically been the weeks since Sondheim's death. We miss him. We think so highly of him. He has shaped our lives. It, it is hard to put into words what a what a impact he has had on our industry and our lives, both personally. So we miss you. Never relevant, forever resonant. And also for a section of the podcast, I frequently refer to Leonard Bernstein as Leonard Bernstein. We do know that his name is Leonard Bernstein. It was a mistake on my part, and I'll see you in my mentions. Enjoy the episode. And welcome to our season finale and first ever live episode of In the Spotlight. I've been waiting far too long to use that sound cue. That's, okay. <laughs> that's a, a new sound cue for the special tonight debut. So welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, an artistic associate here at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my womb to tomb and sperm to worm, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so excited to have people. I mean, it's terrifying to have people I know, here, I know. but it's really exciting. I know. Who would people, have thought? People and like proper pants on, basically, because those are two things that normally when we're recording the podcast, we do not have. I honestly was thinking about saying like this is the first time I've recorded in jeans yeah <laughs> um uh but a couple housekeeping things before we get started so yes this is our um season finale and we will get right into uh the show in a second but the presenting sponsor of this live episode of in the spotlight is Hoffman Audi Hoffman Audi is a proud sponsor of Goodspeed Musicals and a family-owned business for over a hundred years remember Hoffman driven by trust that's our first, like, real app. Okay, um, so Anka, why don't you remind us of the clue you gave us last episode about which show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode. Yes, indeed. So the clue for this one was that this show's original concept featured a gang called the Emeralds. And that show would be... West Side Story. Ba-na-na-na-na. Ba-na-na-na-na. <laughs> too much with a book by <laughs> Arthur Lawrence uh, music by Leonard Bernstein lyrics by Stephen Sondheim based on a conception of Jerome Robbins and on William Shakespeare's 
Romeo and Juliet, everyone's favorite ninth grade English project. And that means it's time for the speed test. Hudson's Four Wax doesn't matter. 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 Where I do my best to summarize the plot of West Side Story in under a minute. So, Annika, do you have one minute on the clock? I do have one minute on the clock. We'll see how good I do. Yeah, you ready? There's a lot of plot in this one. There's, yeah, that's a fair There's a lot one. of plot. It's not as much as Romeo and Juliet, though. But also more. But also more. Hmm. Okay, we'll see. Okay. Ready? As I'll ever be. Sharks, jets, go. Okay, so um, you got the sharks and the jets. Uh, jets, bunch of white boys. Sharks, um, Puerto Ricans. They battle over the territory of the streets uh, through none other than ballet, obviously. Um, and really, Tony, who's their former leader, uh, falls in love with Maria, who is the sister of the leader of the jets. Um, Bernardo, and so it is the star-crossed lovers of these two gangs. Of course, the Jets and Sharks are always fighting each other. They decide there's going to be a big rumble to decide who really owns the streets. Um, and at this rumble, uh, Tony's like, no, don't fight. We can all be friends. And that means his best friend, Riff, gets murdered. <laughs> um, uh, and so then Tony uh, kills Bernardo, and then uh, they all start running around looking for Tony because they're ready to kill him. Uh, and then, spoiler alert, uh, at the very end, um, Chino, who is Bernardo's like secondhand man and also like kind of Maria's um, boyfriend, uh, shoots Tony, and it's very sad that they will not get to live together forever, happily ever after. Well done. <laughs> One minute, 22 seconds. The, the main thing missing from that synopsis is Anita, who is um, the <laughs> you know a major major character in the show. Yeah. Um, but how she figures into the plot is not necessarily as necessary. However, she is the female confidant of Maria. She's Bernardo's girlfriend, um, and certainly yeah. an Oscar baby uh, award baby role that we will talk yes. a lot about. And really, the engine of the tragedy in this show, in a way that. Uh, is not true in Romeo and Juliet. Very, also, partially because that character doesn't exist. Very much so. We'll talk about that. Very much we'll so. Um, and that will bring us to Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the show's big idea, what the authors are trying to say, and what idea governs the show. So. I have, full disclosure, I've directed the show. Um, a very good production, I may say, of the show, Test House. Um, but uh, I, I came at this question very much from my director brain, um, which I, I think the, uh, the themes of the show are quite obvious. It is very much a love versus hate story. It's a story about community. A lot of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk in this segment and the various shows that we look at, it's clearly a question of us versus them and um, how to find a better world in, in, in a world full of different people, basically. Um, and I think it makes an ultimately very hopeful case for that at the end. I think that is the intention of the piece. It's not necessarily written into the script. It's a very dark script with a lot of uh, truth bombs drip, dropped, not dripped, a lot of truth bombs dropped uh, by the characters. Um, but Annika, you, we always come at this question from different ways, and I, yeah. I'm not quite sure what you're going to say. I thought this was a very easy answer, but you said you struggled with it a little bit, or at least yeah. had a lot of wrestling with. So yeah. what, do you think is the, what do you think is the why? Well, I, I did really struggle with this, and I've been thinking about this for days, because I think when you think of West Side Story, a lot of times people say, oh, this is a story about immigration in America. And so when I was rereading the script and when I was watching the movie, I was thinking, is this really a story about immigration? And 
I think, and we will talk about this a little bit more in, a, in another segment, it's, it's really not a story about immigration. I think that the immigration context is the background they've chosen to do this story. So I was like, okay, fine. So if it's not about immigration in America, um, what is this story? What is the takeaway from this story, ultimately? And it, it was a little bit different for me watching the movie from reading the script, because watching the movie, my takeaway was, God, teenagers are jerks. <laughs> Seriously, that was my feeling when I watched the movie. I was like, teenagers are terrible, and they just have all this rage and make life miserable. And, um, and Abolish teenagers. Abolish teenagers. <laughs> no more teenagers. Um, and when you read the script, I think the script is a lot more nuanced than that. Um, but I would say that what I, the story, I think, if I'm going to be uh, saying what I think that they are going for, I would say it is a story about belonging. Um, if I if I am saying what I think is actually coming at me from the script, it's about um, how quickly toxic uh, humans can get in groups, basically, with each other. Well, I think that's an interesting point um, because I, I was thinking a lot about the prologue and how mm -hmm. the um, Escalate in the original, like, Jerome Robbins choreography, which for, yeah. like, 99% of all productions of West Side Story, you see the Jerome Robbins um, choreography co-choreographed by Peter Gennaro, um, very importantly. Uh, but the the escalation of even the fighting between the Jets and the Sharks, is, yeah. it, like, escalates from, like, a casual, like, oh, who is this stranger on my street yeah. to, oh, a little, like, shove. Yeah. We're going to throw some flour on this person. Yeah. We're going to trip this person into where it like ends at the climax is really like Bernardo like taking a knife and like cutting baby John's yeah. like ear which is in many ways like the inciting it's actually the actual inciting incident of the entire thing is that act of violence because that's what brings right everybody in fighting and brawling and then the cops and whatnot even though there's already been <laughs> yeah, the yeah. mixing of all that but it's interesting you say that because yeah, it, yeah. well I, I think what surprised me was when I read the script again and I thought you know if you, if you think of this show, you think of the Sharks and the Jets and this sort of white Americans, even though that's, you know, they, make, they take pains to specify in the script that the Jets are not a, a homogenous unit. They're Italians, they're Polish, they're all sorts of ethnicities. It's just that they are not this other. Um, and when I was reading it, what was interesting to me, and, and if in Romeo and Juliet, it's very much the Montagues and the Capulets. It's this ancient feud. It's been going on for years. Nobody even remembers how it started. The parents are fighting. The, the, the servants are fighting. Everybody is just like part of this thing but that also, these two kids get caught up in. Right, but famously also it's called Romeo and Juliet, and that's what people think yeah. about is the love story. And I don't... Right. Do we really think about the love story when we think about West Side Story? And I do partially, but yeah. I, you make a good and valuable point that I don't know that that is... Well, I takeaway. think it's it's interesting because a lot of discussions are about this particular part of this story, and especially today when we're dealing with representation. But what really surprised me when I was reading the script again is how much the story starts without a sense of an ongoing feud between these two sides. 
that it really is, as you say, it's like started by a thing there and a thing there. And then it's funny with the, with the little clue about the emeralds, like the name emeralds is in the show because they talk about how the Jets previously, you know, they're like, is Tony gonna stand up for us? And it's like, remember what he did with the emeralds? And you're like, oh, there was another gang that they were fighting? Like this isn't about the Sharks versus the Jets, this is about the Jets versus whoever it is that week that's the gang that's on their territory. Like, it, it isn't actually set up as this like, you know, this is, a, this is a big, huge systemic problem that these teenagers fall prey to. Which I think now, if you were writing this story, you would very much feel that. And the kids would probably be representing, you know, viewpoints that their parents had said. And you, you well, feel the presence of it a lot more I was gonna say, as an issue. I was going to say, because you, you, there is textual evidence to, like, why are you mad at the Puerto Ricans? Well, because my right. old man says. And, like, in yeah, some ways, you could, bit. you could make an argument, though, that, like, so much of the truth bombs of the show that I referred to are, and I will talk about later, too, but are the youth yeah. versus the adults mm -hmm. and like the world that the adults have created uh, uh, I don't want to say oppressing but like uh, <clears throat> putting limits on the kids and, and on their experiences and how yes. the misunderstanding between adults and kids is like definitely a theme that runs through it. I don't think it's the governing theme. It's not yeah. the idea that runs it, but it's an interesting point. Well, I just I feel like the absence of the adults is a really interesting choice and it was one that I was very much that's part of what I was struggling with a little bit because I feel like if you had the adult characters in the way that Romeo and Julio, Juliet did, then, and you had them kind of spouting the racist garbage, which you, you hear from Lieutenant Schrank is, to be fair, he is very much yeah. racist against oh, the Puerto Ricans. But, um, offers to literally like, yeah, go ahead and get a yeah, fight with him. I'll help. I'll help you. Yeah. And you're like, ugh. Tough luck. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> um, but it would be interesting if that were true and you got the sense that these kids were kind of pawns in, in a, in a st like that's what you feel at the end of Romeo and Juliet about like, oh, these poor kids are killed because they are pawns in this stupid feud that nobody can remember. And I think there's an opportunity for this show to be something like that, where it's like, you know, immigration is such a fraught topic in America right now. If you had these kids kind of fighting out what they're just hearing around, um, you might have that same sense of like young love can't flourish in this in this world, but because it kind of they present a sort of closed system of these kids, you don't quite get that sense of the larger context. You really just get the sense of these kids as you know ready to blow up and whatever the catalyst is. And in this case, it's just the catalyst that you know the sharks are on their turf and the sharks are someone that they've kind of decided is not are not welcome, but it's not very specific. So. So it was really kind of interesting to go back into that and kind of go, oh, this is so interesting. I always think of this show as this way, but actually there isn't that much of that in the text. So to me, the takeaway from the text is a lot more about the actions of kids. And I think the, the lack of adults is a different kind of condemnation where it's like, they, they, you know, Doc is like the only figure in these people's lives that you get the sense is like actually providing any good guidance for them. Um, so there is a little bit of that sense of like, how is this allowed to just happen with these, you know, th but, how did this get this far? But even Doc is very passive. But we should move on to our next yeah, subject. But, um, yeah. Um, so, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of West Side Story. We can never go back to before. All right. So this is when I dive into the history a little bit of some stuff. Um, I'm not going to really dive into Romeo and Juliet because... 
we would be here all night, except for to say one fact, which I really, really loved when I was looking this up. Um, so West Side Story opened on Broadway in 1957. Uh, Romeo and Juliet was first published in 1597. Oh, that's fun. Destiny. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's sort of a cheat, honestly. Romeo and Juliet was published in, a, it's in what's called a bad quarto. I'm not going to get into yeah, that, yeah, except yeah. for to say that bad quarto is my punk band name if I ever need one. But um, I just thought that was very cool. That's a great, I'm, that's a great band name. <laughs> the, bad great, the bad quarto? I can't good. believe any, I can't believe it hasn't mm, been Someone taken. probably has. Someone probably has. Some drama school reaches. Some nerds. Oh, R.I.P. Oh, All right. Yeah. Um, it's cut for time. Okay, but... <laughs> Instead, I thought I would uh, dive in a little bit to one of the uh, major figures on this show, who is a major figure in theater and American music in general, who we haven't talked about on this podcast yet, um, Leonard Bernstein. So Leonard Bernstein is the composer of West Side Story, obviously, and Stephen Sondheim refers to him in um, his book as a legend verging on myth. And I just loved that because you do you do hear that with Leonard Bernstein. He is spoken of with this sort of awe um, as, a, as a figure in American music. So let's uh, back it up a little bit. He was born August 25th, 1918 in Lawrenceville, Massachusetts. And his name was actually Lewis. His birth name was Lewis, but everyone in his family called him Leonard or Lenny. So he officially changed it when he was a teenager, which I thought was kind of funny. He actually didn't realize his name was not Leonard, <laughs> which <laughs> was a, a weird thing. <laughs> Got to include the weird facts. Um, his father was a Russian immigrant who had been on track to become a rabbi in his native Ukraine, but in America he worked a series of odd jobs in America before becoming fairly successful distributing beauty products. So Lenny was raised thinking that work and success uh, were very important and that the arts and music were not really legitimate careers. Um, he first played a piano at the age of 10 because his Aunt Clara was getting divorced and needed somewhere to store her upright piano which ended up being in his house. And he just completely fell in love with it. He um, just noodled around on it. His father, who was not really supportive of this at some point, would at this point, would not pay for lessons. So he ended up raising the money himself. And pretty much as soon as he started to learn how to play the piano, it was pretty much nonstop from there. Um, I didn't see the word prodigy to use to describe him, but it sure seems like he was a prodigy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was... Uh, playing with symphonies by the time he was a young teenager. He was such an adept sight reader. He could pretty much pick up anything. He was very, very skilled from a very, very early age. And I loved this fact, too. He staged an Americanized version of the opera Carmen when he was 15 um, with the genders flipped, where I was like, hmm, hmm, interesting. And a lot of, like, references to his school and his town and stuff. Um, so even from an early age, he was kind of blowing things up in terms of... Uh, how things worked. So he went to Harvard where he studied music, then he studied intensively at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, then at a, at a summer residency at Tanglewood. Um, he loved many, many musical styles, and he really did not believe in a division between high and low types of music, which was very prevalent at this time. He had a lot of mentors who were firmly in the classical music world, understandably, because he was uh, classically trained. Um, but he kind of refused to divide like uh, erudite intellectual musical forms from ones that were not. And he loved 
pretty much all forms of music. So uh, he wrote his thesis at Harvard on the quote unquote, the absorption, the absorption of race elements into American music. Um, and it really broke down how jazz was the ultimate American musical form and how it was formed from uh, spirituals, gospel, lots of different like Puritan music, like all of this stuff was melding into to jazz. And that seems to be something that is a guiding force in his work. He was really a magpie in terms of musical styles. He loved pretty much all of it and was totally happy if he was inspired by something to work it into whatever he was doing. So there was really like international styles, different styles, when he would travel, like whatever it was, he loved to use it and he refused to kind of think of things as categorizations. Um, so then uh, he did some odd jobs until a stroke of luck. Um, he was appointed the assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic. And this was partially apparently because he had asthma, so he wasn't able to enlist. Um, and lots of young men obviously had been taken away to war, so there was not that many musicians available. Also, he was like very skilled and everybody loved him. So two things. But famously, and this is a famous story um, that I had heard actually well before this one, but on November 14th, 1943, the symphony's prestigious guest conductor, Bruno Walter, was sick, and Bernstein stepped in at the last minute to conduct, um, and he was an immediate triumph to the point where the New York Times wrote a front page story about the concert. Um, and it really turned him overnight into a major celebrity. And you can, you can see great videos of people who were there that night, who were the musicians that were, um, playing just and how different this was, how completely full of energy he was. And it was like a, you were just like along for this ride. Um, and so, and he was only in his twenties at this point. So from then it's, it just basically became a wild train ride. And, um, he went on, I'm, I'm not going to do the rest of his career in this depth, but, um, also in 1943, that same year, a dancer named Jerome Robbins asked Bernstein to compose a ballet for him, which became fancy free which was considered the finest ballet on an American theme. Um, that piece became On the Town, um, which horrified some of his fancy, fancy classical musical mentors because he, they, were, they just thought that musicals were a low kind of form and he was wasting his time. But um, again, Bernstein didn't really believe in dividing like that and that there was one, there was one thing that was more worthy than the other. Um, so basically, over the course of his career, he wrote musicals, including On the Town, Wonderful Town, West Side Story, and Candide. He wrote ballets, he wrote symphonies, he wrote film scores, he wrote chamber music, he wrote operas, he wrote choral music. He's just all over the place. Um, and his music really sounds different from anybody else who ever wrote. I mean, it's such a breath of fresh air whenever you hear it. Um, he was also beloved by everybody who worked with him pretty much. He was a lifelong humanitarian, worked in support of human rights, all sorts of different causes. and. Um, was the recipient of, I have a list here, 11 Emmy Awards, one Tony Award, 17 Grammy Awards, um, including the Lifetime Achievement and a Kennedy Center honor. So no slouch, I would say. I mean, I have to say, it also, if you haven't ever watched a video of him conducting, it, yeah. he is very fun to watch mm -hmm. conduct, particularly of his own work, but he's very dramatic and expressive. It's, yeah. It's like, it's very fun. Yeah, and it's funny, because it feels like he was one of those people that comes along where they are so bursting with the love of it that they just break through boundaries where people who are not typically classical music fans, it's, it's an infectious thing to watch him love this so much. And, and he loved teaching people about it. So it really is, I understand why he's held in such, such reverence. 
And that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So I found this quote from Jerome Robbins, which I thought was really instructive, um, at least even to my experience working on the show, but I, I think it's, I, I loved it. But he said, quote, why did Lenny have to write an opera, Arthur a play, me a ballet? Um, why, why couldn't we, in aspiration, try to bring our deepest talents together to the commercial theater, end quote? Which I think is great because you can really feel that tension between all three of them when you work on it. You've got these three masters working, and even Sondheim included in that, masters working at the top of their game, and like that tension feels like integral to the script on a certain level. And yeah, there's tension on stage, obviously, because like they all want to kill each other. But there is this like just natural like, who thinks that let's start a musical with finger snaps? Who? No, geniuses. Anyway, um, so the idea for West Side Story really starts um, with Jerome Robbins, who um, in the late 40s calls Bernstein and has this idea to take Romeo and Juliet and turn it into a, uh, a Jews versus Catholics around an Easter Seder on like the Lower East Side. And they're gonna call it East Side Story. Uh, and, <laughs> Rob right, right. Um, so, um, Robbins recruits Lawrence, who said he wouldn't write the libretto for a Bernstein opera. Basically saying like, you know, everyone talks about Verity's this and Puccini's that, and like, they just wrote the music. Someone else actually came up with the structure and everything. Uh, so I thought that was fun. So after they sketched out an outline and Lawrence wrote a couple of scenes, they realized that the show felt stale uh, and the dynamics of the Lower East Side had changed with a recent influx of Latin Americans. So they took that idea and they're like, oh great, we can influence some like Latin themes into the music and let's call it Gangway. Terrible title. I, Terrib I feel like if we've learned anything doing this podcast is that most of these musicals had Terrible, terrible working titles. Terrible. Working. terrible. <laughs> but actually I read somewhere that they also considered a worse title which is Gang Bang. Ooh. I know. Tough, tough. Um, it's a good choice not to go there. So unsurprisingly with, that, with those titles, the project goes into purgatory for a while, um, as, and the three men are very successful, so they're uh, working all over the country, and it's when Lawrence and Bernstein run into each other in Los Angeles around 1955 that they pick up um, work on the project again when they see a newspaper story about gang riots in LA between Mexicans and so-called Americans. Uh, drawing a parallel to the Puerto Rican population in New York, the project got off the ground again. Bernstein had originally intended to write the lyrics as well, but quickly realized that this was too much work for him because he was also working at Candide. Uh, he was also working on Candide at the time. So uh, they put in a call to his former collaborators on On the Town, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who were too busy making a film, so they said no. Uh, so they settled for a then unknown composer by the name of Stephen Sondheim. Uh, <laughs> what happened to that guy? What a guy. Um, <laughs> Who's that? Who's so, that? Um, he initially didn't even want to take it uh, because he didn't want to be relegated to being just a lyricist in his work. But after a strong push from his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein II, he joined the team. The team collectively agreed that the style of the show was not conventional, and Lawrence said in a quote, it was, quote, neither formal poetry nor uh, flat uh, nor flat dialogue, neither opera nor split-level musical comedy numbers, neither zipper in ballets nor characterless dance routines. We didn't want newsreel acting, blue jean costumes, or garbage can scenery any more than we wanted soapbox pounding for our theme of young love destroyed by a violent world of prejudice. 
And they actually had a lot of trouble finding a producer to take on, uh, to take on the show, and they were turned down by, uh, according to research, turned down by Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, George Abbott, and even Sondheim's friend Hal Prince, an up-and-coming producer. Uh, eventually, it was picked up by Cheryl Crawford, who had produced a number of hits, including Porky and Bess, One Touch of Venus, and probably most famously, Brigadoon and Paint Your Wagon. Uh, but she pitted the writers against one another and eventually told them all that uh, they needed to rewrite the whole thing or she was out. And they said, we're not going to rewrite, so she was out, and they didn't have a producer. So re-enter Hal Prince, who was out of town with another musical, and flew into New York to hear the score again with his partner, Robert Griffith, and they took up the project, raising the $350,000 required in less than a week, which I think is amazing. It's also amazing that a new Broadway musical could cost only $350,000. So auditions actually lasted nearly six months as the team sought performers who were youthful, could sing the Bernstein score, authentically act the Lawrence libretto, and dance the athletic choreography Robbins envisioned. Cheetah Rivera, who had been in a few Broadway shows by that time, was the first and easiest to cast as Bernardo's girlfriend, Anita, the counterpart for Shakespeare's nurse. And it was actually at her suggestion that Larry Kurt auditioned for the show and was subsequently cast as Tony, the Romeo of the story. And at his audition for Tony, he sang the newly written Tonight with Carol Lawrence, who was there auditioning for her 13th time. Ooh. Can you imagine auditioning for something 13 times? You can't do that legally by equity standards anymore, but 13 no. times, that's insane. Um, and Robbins actually had Lawrence hide in the rafters of the stage and made Kurt find her and climb up to her while they performed the balcony scene, which he subsequently described as one of the most mesmerizing auditions he had ever seen. And rehearsals were incredibly tense as Robbins was a notorious taskmaster and hard to please. As a true method director, he famously kept the Jets and the Sharks separate during the entire rehearsal process to increase the tribal tendencies of both groups and kept them perpetually at war with the other gang. He even encouraged the Jets to ostracize anybody's, the tomboy who always remains on the outskirts of the Jets. And it's worth noting that Peter Gennaro, co-choreographer of the original production, actually created a lot of the choreography that is now synonymous with Jerome Robbins. There are some debates as to who came up with what, but um, Chi Rivera, for one, has said that almost all of her choreography was created by Gennaro. So, America. Interesting. Peter Gennaro, interesting, yeah, right? It's also notable that uh, keeping the, shut, the, the shits, the sharks and the jets apart did not totally work in all cases, because Cheetah Rivera and one of the actors who played one of the Jets ended up getting married, so yeah. I guess there was Forbidden romance. love all around. Forbidden, Forbidden love. love all around. Yep. Uh, show, the show actually changed very little during its out-of-town tryouts, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the team wrote a new song for the middle of Act One that Lawrence rejected, believing it would tip the show into uh, musical comedy territory, and Sondheim attempted to lift tonight's lyrics a little bit more and edit some lyrics in I Feel Pretty, changes that the team ultimately never even tried. Uh, and the show um, got great reviews out of town in DC, got chillier reviews in Philadelphia, and by the time it got to New York, um, it sort of received mixed reviews with critics divided on what to make of this new kind of deep social commentary musical, unsure of how to handle what they had just seen. And it famously lost the Tony Award for Best Musical to The Music Man, a choice I happen to agree with as much as I love West Side Story. I happen, I've went on the record with that in our Music Man podcast. I think The Music Man is A+. Plus. but. I also know that that's an unpopular opinion. Um, and Sondheim would later say that theater people liked it, but general audiences, not so much. 
Uh, it, of course, was famously adapted into a mega-hit 1961 um, musical film directed by Robert Wise and uh, Jerome Robbins, who was fired during the making of it but shot all the dance scenes and then left. Um, and it won, like, a record. It's, like, 11 Oscars yeah. or something. Uh, Ten wins uh, more than any other musical film. Included. And more than any other movie, I think, at the time, maybe. Maybe Ben-Hur had more. Why do I know this? Um, uh, uh, why does that take up space in my brain? Um, but it's uh, obviously a, a cultural touchpoint film. It's a huge deal. Um, and I... It's interesting that the success of the movie and people seeing the film really takes the show into, it like catapults the show after the fact um, in a way, like it makes it, what am I trying to say? It, yeah. it, the show, which was not well received, suddenly was thought of as this like genius piece of work because of the movie essentially. Um, so I, I just think that's interesting in the larger yeah. history of West Side Story. It has a few revivals um, that are, you know, moderately successful um, yeah. um probably most famously i mean there's an 80s revival that there's is revival, pretty yeah. notorious um but then in the 2009 revival uh they interpolated a lot of spanish into the piece translated by lin manuel miranda mm -hmm. um after his in the Heights success um uh to uh you know polarizing results i think yeah i happen to be in the camp that i thought it was great but i know a lot of people did not um, it certainly makes the Tonight Quintet a little messy. Um, and Arthur Lawrence himself directed that production, uh, which people, yeah, it was it had a mixed reception. Um, if you want to know about Arthur Lawrence's feelings on anything, read his screed mainly on directing, where he just yells about how to direct Gypsy and West Side Story. Um, he has very specific thoughts. Um, but uh, And then most recently, it was um, revived on Broadway, which mm -hmm. uh, has been... Uh, you know, ultimately now is dead because of the pandemic. It will not yeah. be coming back post post shutdown. Um, but a again a polarizing revival um, yeah. directed by Evil Van Hove, and is now about to come out as a movie in a few weeks, directed by Steven Spielberg. Yes, indeed. Which seems to be the most well, I don't know, according to the trailer and from what I've read of it, it seems to be the most kind of traditional take on it. The Evil Van Hove one was very uh, avant-garde, full of screens, like lots of bold choices made. Um, and the Spielberg one seems to be sort of a loving uh, tribute to the show. And Tony Kushner's doing some work on the book, so that'll be interesting. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside, something's coming. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let's dive into Something's Coming, which is, of course, the song where we really meet Tony. And it's in many ways an I want song, although it's kind of interesting because it's not technically really an I want song. It's it's not an I want something specific song. It's a sort of restless general, um, might as well be spring sort of, I'm feeling something, I'm waiting for something, I'm yearning for something, but I also don't really know what that something is. So it's kind of a subgenre of I want song. Um, and this is, of course, when we have heard about Tony. This is basically the second scene. Heard about Tony. The Jets have talked about Tony. Um, we know he's important to this group. We know he's kind of separated himself from this group. And then Riff goes to talk to Tony and we meet him. And uh, Tony explains that he's sort of done with the gang. It's not really exciting to him anymore. But also that for the last month, um, it's kind of interesting that it's a specific amount of time. He's been waking up and reaching for something. 
but he doesn't know what it is. And he, it gives him the same kick that being in a gang used to give him, but this is now the new feeling for him. So, and then of course, as soon as Riff leaves, this is the song he will sing um, by himself. This is a personal moment. It's just him um, thinking his feelings aloud, very personal interior song that we get uh, a glimpse of his, his innards basically. Um, and what's brilliant about this song is that we don't really uh, get a ton of depth on Tony as a character um, or Maria, really. Uh, we get a little bit, but never really a lot. And when they meet, they fall in love very quickly and they fall into a very deep love very quickly. Um, so you need something that's going to kind of set us up so that we will accept their love story as uh, true and real and something special. Um, so you need something that's going to put us in the right place for this. Um, and this song is going to do it exactly. Uh, it's going to really set us exactly where we need to be to understand who Tony is, um, which is basically this kind of restless, energetic teenage boy who has one foot in childhood, one foot in adulthood, um, and a lot of drive, but also at the same time, a lot of uh, thoughtfulness and contemplativeness and a sort of openness to be at the forces of the universe and at the whim of the forces of the universe. So this song is going to place us exactly where we will need to be and exactly where Tony will need to be for the action to happen later. And that's a really perfect thing for this song to do. So let's dive in. Okay, so even before we have any lyrics, we have this really great vamp. We've got this really great rhythmic little vamp and it sounds just like an excited heartbeat. I mean, it just almost feels like you're listening to a heart monitor there, um, which is of course the perfect illustration of Tony's state. He's optimistic, he's excited, um, he's anticipating, but it's not something that's just come on right now. It's not new information he's just been given. He's in this kind of constant state of this and has been for a while. So this, this music places us exactly right there already. And it starts out with this little hop up, but then it, it's just on the same rhythm, repeating, 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 waiting for him to come in. Could be. something do any day I will know right away soon as it shows. So contrasting with this excited heartbeat under in this vamp is Tony's vocal line which starts out much more contemplative. We, we dive right in with these long legato held notes um, and we're getting him mid-thought here. Could be, who knows. These are sort of fragments of sentences that are sort of responding to Riff's last statement, which is that maybe what he's waiting for is at the dance. But it also feels like something Tony's wondered about a lot, that we're just kind of diving into Tony's brain as he's going about his day, as he's just thinking about whatever this something is that is reaching out for him, that he's reaching out for. Um, but the combination of those long thoughtful notes over the excited heartbeat of the rhythm really captures this for us. Excited, but a sustained excited curiosity. And then we get this uh, interesting syncopated rhythm as he expands on the thought. There's something due any day, I will know when it appears. Like it's, it's sort of like 
chunks of thought hopping around. Um, he's got the contemplation, but here he's the excitement is is taking over, and it's, it's sort of kind of hopping rhythm. It's a really interesting sort of jumping little uh, bit of music here that captures um, where his brain is. And of course, this song, like the score itself, is full of what are called tritones, which is an interval of notes that's uh, actually, it's called the devil's interval, which I love because it's so dramatic, but it feels very tense and unresolved, um, which is perfect for Tony here as well. I mean, he is it's a happy tension, but it's definitely a tension. And it's unresolved because he doesn't really know what he's waiting for. You know, he doesn't have the resolution of whatever this is. He's he's in a perfect state of, of waiting. Um, and it's also doing this clever musical thing where the vocal lines are slightly before the rhythm, which captures that sense of bolting excitement. This is literally called a push rhythm. Um, so in this music here, the music and the lyrics perfectly are coming together. Um, obviously Bernstein and Sondheim, both geniuses, to capture this, um, this state that Tony is in, and it's just so brilliant. It'd make him cannonballing down through the sky, gleaming its eye, bright as a rose. All right, then we get this, really get this hit of teen boy energy. This part just kind of pours out of him, and it's so beautifully mirrored in the music. Um, you can almost hear that cannonball, right? All these, like, short staccato words all emphasized and then the same note and then kind of sliding down and sliding up and it's it's just fun and I love that this is also his reference cannonball cannonballing out of the sky because that feels like so perfect for Tony's life right he doesn't probably have a ton of lived experience of anything but he's a teen boy and he would have been goofing around with his friends and swimming with his friends and like cannonballing all over the place it's just a perfect sort of uh, reference for what the reality of his life is. Who knows? It's only just out of reach, down the block on a beach, under a tree. I got a feeling there's a miracle due, gonna come true, coming to me. And so then we go back briefly to that first legato, who knows, the contemplative place, the sort of more contained place, the thoughtful place, before hopping back into that restless excitement, and then again into this driving energy, which is going to get even more driving, more than we've seen before. He's hopping between all these things, as we get the sense that he often does, and, and it's giving us a sense both that we are catching a glimpse of a private moment where he's not he's not formalizing his thoughts in any particular way. He's just thinking them as they come through, but also that, that his brain is full of a mix of things right now. He doesn't know what this is that he's waiting for. Um, he certainly doesn't know it's necessarily Maria at a dance. It could be anything. I mean, it could be, he, he just knows it's something. So he has no place to put that other than excitement and questioning and contemplation and openness. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. Um, I just love how mushed up the lyrics are onto this music. And by mushed up, I don't mean badly scanned, because of course the Sondheim is never badly scanned. But we have this kind of odd placement of emphasis. I don't know what it is, but it is going to be great. Um, what and but obviously being a rhyme, but 
and also emphasized in the music there with that sort of hit on those words. But it just feels like it's pouring out of him. He's just said, if I can wait, right? He's not sure he can actually patiently wait for whatever this thing is. Um, and here we have a great illustration of how hard that is for him. He, he has trouble waiting. He's not necessarily patient, this part of him. Um, you know, he's just, he has got this really driving mem melody. He, he, he wants this thing to happen. He's ready for this thing to happen. He's not sure he can wait for it, but, but he also has all these words. He has all these thoughts. It's just kind of like, it, it's coming out of him. It's just pure from his gut coming out of him and we get to witness it. And that's so right for who Tony is um, in terms of his youth and his sort of uh, naivete, but also that he, that it's just interior. It's just what's going on in his head. It's going, it's pouring out of his mouth, it's pouring out of his heart. We're there for all of it. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the latch, something's coming, don't know when. So that almost stream of consciousness, kind of we are witnessing his brain sense continues here with these fragmented images. Um, and they're almost childlike. I really love that. Uh, it, he's not an adult yet. He's young. He's a teenager. And he's having these sort of like images of something coming in the room and open the door for it. You know, he's almost like acting out as like play acting what's going to happen. Um, not to mention the addition of one-handed catch as he catches the moon. It just, it feels like a kid playing in his own backyard, right? Oh, he's going to catch the moon. Cool. And then, oh, even cooler. It's a one-handed catch. He's so good. Woo. You know, it's just like this personal thing. And there's such an innocence to it and such a sweetness to it that of course is gonna make his eventual fate even more heartbreaking, but it's also setting us up for the purity of Tony, which differs from what we've seen of all the other Jets. He's not like the other kids. He's willing to show us, although obviously he's not actively showing us, a sort of vulnerability, um, an openness, a sweetness, an innocence uh, that, that a lot of these kids can't afford to have. He still has it. Um, and it, it just makes you love him a little bit. I love this because it's a real nice mashup of all these things so far. It's that super excited heartbeat is getting even more excited. It's getting faster and faster and faster, and but it's always keeping that same driving rhythm. Um, and it's we get the longer legato notes, but now it's kind of moving into the territory where it's not just pondering. It's come on, it's yearning. Um, it's coming around the, the river. He's he's imagining it and he's drawing it to him. And of course, we get this fantastic illustration of the wind in the strings. The strings are doing such beautiful work in this in this song. Um, he's kind of drawing it forward. His emotions are starting to be uh, pulled into the like yearning for it. He he's like it feels like a summoning almost in these long, reaching higher notes. Um, he's ready for it. He's calling it into being. 
will it be? Yes, it will. Maybe just by holding still, it'll be there. Come on, something, come on in. Don't be shy. Meet a guy, pull up a chair. Again, I love this because if the other imagery section that we got felt very childlike, this is starting to feel like the grown up part of Tony, right? He's playfully coaxing the something to come in and sit, you know, meet a guy, sit down, you know, it's kind of fun. He sounds like his own grandfather a little bit. It's, it's really fun. It's humorful. It's sweet and charming. Um, and that's another part of Tony that we get to see in this. And we get that same great oddly rhythmed mush of words um, with that sort of emphasis on the interesting moments. He's just, he's got a lot of emphasis. He's got a lot of energy and he's, he doesn't quite know where to place it, which is correct. He doesn't quite know where to place any of this right now. He's just waiting. The air is humming and something great is coming. Who knows? It's only just out of reach down the block on a beach. Maybe tonight. So this is beautiful. This is where the song changes from something that might be a song that simply illustrated, illustrates a, uh, an emotional mental state to a song that really does change the narrative slightly, um, change the reality of the plot between the beginning and the end, because you get this interesting section where he's saying the air is humming and you get those beautiful strings doing that humming for you. It's like this, it feels like a supernatural being is kind of entering the picture a little bit. And he's just, he's gone from in this song pondering what it could be, feeling like something's there. It's right out of reach. What is it? What could it be? Um, it could do this. It could do that. You know, come on. To kind of coaxing it. He's he's calling it. He's wanting it to come. And then it feels like here, maybe something has actually arrived. It feels like this is a slightly different state of being than the rest of the song. And honestly, I mean, that feels a little weird to say that there's like a slight supernatural element to this song. But I think that's fine. Honestly, I feel like Tony is clearly a true romantic. And although I don't think he would ever say necessarily that he was spiritual or that he was um, religious or that he believed in some sort of greater spirit, I think he does. You can hear it in this song in that sense that there is some being, something, some something that he feels is waiting there that is that is conscious and sentient enough that he can call to it and bring it forward and, and have it come to him, that he's aware of it, but also that, that he's aware that it has not arrived yet, but it's going to. And in this moment, this interesting music here on the air is humming, I don't know, it just kind of feels to me like, oh, okay, he was successful. The thing has arrived. And obviously we know that it will arrive later because what the thing is clearly is that he's going to go and meet Maria and that is going to happen and it's going to be this great love. Um, but what I love is that after that moment, it goes back to an exact repeat of a phrase from the beginning. 
Um, so he's back in that contemplative place that he was in the very beginning, pondering what this thing could be. Then it hops to this sort of like, it's just out of reach to that kind of idea. But then in the very last moment of the song, we have something new. And it is so important, which is that he says, maybe tonight. And it almost feels like a little afterthought. Like it's not fully in his brain in the way some of these other things are in his brain. Um, and sometimes, I mean, it's interesting because the recordings are slightly different what note this is, but sometimes it's a note that feels like it's reaching up almost out of the song. It's not the expected note, which kind of feels like it's breaking free of this moment. Like this moment has, has com completed and something has a sort of escaped to the next thing, um, which does set us up perfectly for, for where the plot is gonna go. But I also love that the last thing he says is some, maybe tonight. And of course, when he meets Maria and they fall immediately in love and they sing tonight, we're gonna to remember this moment and we're gonna realize that the something that he was referring to here is exactly the something that has happened with Maria. I mean, we would know that anyway, but the, the just the very entrant, the just the very inclusion of the word tonight at the very end of this song feels like the thing is here, it is in the room, it is present in the song, it is present in the show, and it hasn't just taken its full form yet, but it's about to. So again, if you have that kind of interesting section with the air is humming where it feels like whatever he has summoned has arrived, this is like the first hint that it's here now. And so when we, when we are at the end of this song, we know that something is going to happen and it's gonna happen soon. At the beginning of the song, we're simply meeting Tony. We're hearing how he's feeling. We're, we know that he's restless. We know that he's young. We know that he's excited, um, but we don't necessarily have a sense that whatever he's singing about is something that is going to affect the plot. But now I think we really do. So Sondheim and Bernstein have done a really brilliant, brilliant thing because once we meet Maria and once we dive into straight into that love story, we are fully prepped for it from this song. And also from Maria saying how much she wants to be seen as a grown up. She wants to grow up, um, which is gonna prep her side of it, right? She meets Tony and that for her is growing up, uh, the falling in love immediately with him. But for Tony, this is going to be the completion of this sense that he's been waiting for something. He knows that there's something very, very special waiting for him. And of course, when we see it, we're like, oh, of course, that's the special thing. We're all on the same page. We were ready for this too go forth, you know, a, a very immediate love saw, love moment happening between two people who don't know each other at all can seem cheesy, can seem fake, can seem um, not real. It just something you don't necessarily believe, but you have to believe it in order to care about what happens later. And this song really allows us to believe in it because we believe in what Tony believes in in this song. Um, which is that there is something larger than him, larger than Maria, larger than the Jets, larger than the fighting between two gangs that he senses is about to happen to him. And indeed, when it does, we are on board as well. We are made to be the romantics that he is uh, by the brilliance of the song. So, you know, well done, Bernstein and Sondheim. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues that the show faces, both internal and external. 
So there's obviously, there's always a lot to discuss with every single show and the, the difficulties of every show that we explore on this show. Um, I, I think we should start with West Side Story with the representation of the sharks because I think from a structural standpoint, there's a disadvantage um, given to the sharks just in that we know right off the bat it's the Jets' territory. They are kind of put in an antagonist role to that, particularly then when they're pretty immediately dismissed off the stage by Shrank, and then Shrank talks a lot of crap about them, and then Shrank leaves, and then the Jets get this like, we're the Jets, we're the greatest song. Um, and then we go pretty immediately into the scene, I, I think the scene that immediate, immediately follows it is the scene with Tony and, um, Tony and uh, Riff, who's the leader of the Jets, and then we get something's coming. So it's like we're very much set up to care very deeply about the Jets. Then, cut next scene, cut to, is in the bridal shop with Maria and Anita, who are the only real like emotional anchor that we have on the shark side, and yet they're not even in the gang. Um, and the only kind of characterization we get of any of the sharks comes like briefly right before America where we get a little bit about Bernardo and his kind of take on America, but it's in, it's in reference to the girls really liking America and it's like very, very, very brief. Whereas we have numerous scenes understanding the Jets' motivations, Doc's is their place, they get to have all this dialogue with Doc where we learn about their inner turmoil and their conflict. So I feel like the show doesn't set up the sharks very fairly. Um, that's kind of how I view it. And I actually, and I thought, to reference what I said earlier, I thought the 2009 revival, by giving them some Spanish and, and upping them a little bit in, in that way, in their authenticity, I thought it helped balance that out a little bit so it didn't just feel like the Jet story where the sharks are like the characters that we hate. Um, but do you think that's, am I over-reading into that or do you think that that is a fair kind of, we're not set up to equally care about them? No, I think that's totally fair. Um, and I also want to note that this is, I think, the first time we've had the problem like Maria section where <laughs> Maria is actually the problem. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was like, oh, that's, that fits. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think you do, you are located very much with the Jets as the group you get to know a lot better. They have their own language, their own slang. They have the interdynamics between, you know, you know what's happening. You know the relationship between Riff and Tony. You know the relationship between... Um, Everybody and Tony. They all have very specific yeah, feelings about Tony. They do. But also you know that like Riff lives with Tony. Right. And, the, like, right. You know, and even the sharks know stuff about Tony and his father where you're like, why does everybody know this about Tony? But um, you know that some of them are hotheads. You know that anybody's is trying to get into the gang. You know, <clears throat> you just know a lot about them. And I think you're right that the, the sharks, you get a lot less. And what you get is not great. You get a kind of a surfacey sort of like, I mean, except with the exception of Anita, who actually does feel a little bit more fleshed out than everybody else. I think um, Maria feels somewhat fleshed out. I, that may yeah, not be a popular yeah. opinion. I feel like there is some depth I, there. Yeah, I mean, certainly Maria is as fleshed out as But Tony neither is. of them are technically in the sharks. They're not the gang. No, not the, quite. You know, so. but, but you're right. I mean, you get more of Maria. Um, what you get of... Chino is... Eh? Nothing. Yeah. What you get of Indio is... Eh? Mm. And, you know, it's interesting. If you watch the movie, you come away knowing that the Jets are, 
you know a lot of their names. You know, you know, there's Rift, there's Action, there's Arab, there's Baby John. Baby John. There's a bunch of them, and you kind of have a sense of who their personalities are. And Snowboy, yeah, Guitar. Some right. of the names are terrible. Some of the names. And then there was one where it was like Diesel was renamed Ice, and I was like, Yeah, okay, for no reason. Sure, why? Yeah, movies. Whatever. Um, but you don't. You get the sense that Bernardo, Chino, sharks. Yes. Um, and they all wear red and purple, which I was always like a choice where I'm like, this is, seems strange, but you know, fine. Um, so I think that's fair. And, and what you know of them is that they are hot-headed, that they are passionate and stubborn, and that they are like very sexual. Right, because you do get through Anita some characterization of yeah. like oh, your brother when he comes home from a rumble. Yeah. Like you know, there is like that, but you don't really get beyond that. Like there's one that one scene where Bernardo has his like speech yeah. that he says all the time about how America's not fair to him and right. you know all that which it just doesn't doesn't feel like an equal balance. No, they they I think they're largely reactionary. They're asked to carry a lot of the weight of what it feels like to be targeted, but it doesn't feel like they're also given space to actually have their own space. Which I think is an interesting I bring it up because it also I and doing the research for this, it was fascinating to me how um how willing to criticize or um, uh, not defend basically their work kind of all of the creators are. Like yeah. Stephen Sondheim had this whole thing about how the characters, like pretty soon after West Side Story had opened, he was like, well, West Side Story won't be timeless because uh, the theater is about characters and all the characters are basically stereotypes. None of them are interesting. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Also, way to be proven wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But like... I, they were all kind of ready to like, you know, crucify their own work on it, which I didn't yeah. think was fair, but it, it raises this question of is Mel, it is to me, it raises the question of is West Side Story a true like tragedy of like classic proportion that is like, well, you know, in the vein of what they're basing it off of and like the Shakespearean kind of tragedy, or is it just melodrama that is really interesting melodrama that we really care about but it's ultimately very surface level and I have to say even watching the movie there are certain um, first off the movie actually holds up I've kind of hated on the movie a little bit saying that it doesn't hold up very well but I watched it last night and it actually does hold up yeah, pretty pretty, well. pretty, it's like pretty, pretty well shot mm. um, and uh, I feel like I've been hard on it but it, it was really lovely but even like there are moments that like the musical underscoring like is so over dramatic and it's like yeah Anita like you know she op Maria opens the door after Tony's left and it's just Anita in the doorway and it's right and I'm like yeah it's a little dramatic that's a little much um but it's drama so I guess I want to pose the question like yeah do you think it's tragedy or melodrama well it's interesting because I feel like those those are two complicated terms um that have had a lot of definitions I mean it certainly is effective like it's it's a deeply sad intense story and it's hard not to get to that ending and just cry and I think that some of the changes that they made from Romeo and Juliet are good ones like Arthur Lawrence talks about how the choice to have Anita and the the very harrowing kind of near rape scene where she goes to deliver the message to Tony and the Jets attack her basically and she says you know tell Tony that Maria is dead um, <clears throat> Arthur Lawrence in his typically humble way called that an improvement on Romeo and Juliet because it is overtly hate that has caused the tragedy of the ending 
in a way that in Romeo and Juliet, it's, you know, Friar Lawrence and the thing and the message doesn't get delivered and it's a little bit more like da 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 to get to that point, even though it's set against this larger background. Um, and I think that is true. I think that is an improvement because it, it feels like there are a lot of different choices that could be made over the course of the story that could potentially lead to a different outcome. Um, and you are left with a sort of hopelessness at the end a little bit. I mean, there's both hope that they've, they've come out of this and found peace for the moment, but there's also a sense of like, yeah, but how long is that gonna last? You know, what is this world that they have? It is kind of, there's a reason that the dream ballet is like a, a world where there's peace and sunshine and like grass, you know, you just get the sense that they, these kids are kind of stuck in this perpetuating thing. Um, are there things that I, that I wish were a little bit more developed potentially? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is hard for me not to look at it with a 2020 view and... Well, it's also our job. It's I mean, our it's, job. it's our job yeah, as, yeah. as theater artists, you know, to, yeah. just to buttress, to support everything you're gonna say. Like, yeah, it's yeah. our job to look at it with that lens. Right, and so do I think that if, if you had a little bit of what I talked about before with the sense of like, that this is a feud that is not just these kids, that they are the, the actors of a much more insidious uh, force that's all acting all around them, um, I think you would feel that tragedy even more because you would get the sense, you know, and, and especially now when immigration is still extremely fraught and racism in our country is extremely fraught, you know, um, I think you would have had a little bit more of that sense of like, this is an issue that is, killing people in many ways and and I mean all the time but like Tony and Maria would stand in for sort of the futility of some of that hateful arguments in a way that in the show it doesn't quite feel that way so so do I think it would be interesting if they had explored um, a little bit more a few more levels of reality um, than they chose to yeah I think so do I blame them for not doing that in 1957 not particularly. I mean, I do think that, you know, I wish that a, a, a song like America, which kind of famously, I think Stephen Sondheim said in Finishing the Hat, you know, as soon as he wrote it, like a, a man who was the head of the Rusk Institute got in touch with him and was basically like, you know, there's this line about island of tropic diseases. And he was like, I, 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 I worked in Puerto Rico. There's actually very few tropic diseases and the mortality rate is lower than, than on the mainland. And they chose to keep that stuff in there to kind of pre present Puerto Rico as this kind of like backwards island full of storms and disease um, because it kind of served their purpose in a way that today you wouldn't do that. You, would, you wouldn't be able to kind of just paint with that broad a brush um, the, these issues of people who are coming from that place. Although I also thought it was interesting that Lynn Miranda apparently had said that when he first, he was cast as Bernardo in like sixth grade and he apparently um, loved West Side Story, which uh, is not surprising, he loves lots of musicals, but part of why he loved it was because he loved that it portrayed the debate of whether to go back to Puerto Rico or not. And I thought, God, that's such an interesting thing for Lynn Miranda to pull out from that show, because me watching that show, I'm like, oh, that barely seems to register for me as a debate. I mean, you certainly see a little bit of it in America where it's like, is this a bad place to be? Is that a worse place to be? But for him, clearly that, re that really resonated and you see it in, in The Heights, which he wrote kind of partially in response to it. So it's kind of an interesting 
there's clearly a lot in there that's pulling out at a lot of different threads. So that is a very long rambling answer to say, I think, I think I would have to say that it must succeed as a tragedy for it to have the resonance that it has had. I think it could be a more effective tragedy um, on, with slight adjustments. Yeah, I, would, I, I think it is a, I don't think it's a fair critique that they make of themselves in the work to call it melodrama. Like, yeah. I, I think the music does such a phenomenal, it's a musical. At the end of the day, it's a musical. Yeah. And the musical deepens the characters and deepens the relationships and, and does the, the work that it's supposed to do in terms of creating an inner life that makes us care about all of these characters. I mean, yeah. talk about, we'll get to it in favorite things, but like, what a score. Like, it does, yeah. there are so many Ooh. phenomenal songs. Yeah. And like, they do a lot of heavy lifting. And so the flip argument, I would say, is that, yeah, yeah Arthur Lawrence wrote a very economical book yes. that got exactly to what it needed to get to, let the story, like, let the music do its work, and then let Jerome Robbins dance like do what it did to yes. then complete the story because the other the other like topic what we talk about with a lot of these shows is like the original things that were done however many years ago and how much do they constrain the show now west side story is an interesting case of that in the same way with like chorus line is and that like you basically have to do the jerome robbins choreography like it is yeah. a part of the licensing it's like required you have to get very special permission to not do it and normally, I would be in the camp that argues, like, let somebody else do it. Let's do it new. But you really are talking about, like, masterful, next to perfect. Like, it is all thought through. It has its climaxes. It has, like, it is so intricate and detailed yeah. when you're really not just doing the steps and you're doing the choreography. Yeah. Um, I actually, weirdly in this case, would make the point that like, mm, maybe let's not actually. Because yeah. I do think that it is so integral to how the piece is and how it's shaped and every bit of it that I think to lose it, like you're taking away like a third of the like show almost. The show. And yeah. like you just have to be able to then fill in that third, which is not impossible, but yeah. you also have to have the time, resources, abilities, and like understanding of what, how, what you're taking away, how much you're really taking away by choosing to not do it. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that is a very true and very important thing to remember about this show is that it is it is a kind of um, dramatically integrated show that was a huge... I mean, it was a, it's like a, a big step forward. You cannot... I mean, it, it, the choreography tells so much of the story. You're right. The, the score tells so much of the story that it is almost unfair to look at any one piece of it and not see it as a whole. Well, and it's something, frankly, I didn't even really realize until I worked on the show and worked yeah. with someone who had learned and been as part of the genealogy, um, shout out to Beth Crandall, um, part of the genealogy of um, the Robbins estate and West Side Story and Jerome Robbins Broadway yeah. and all those things and had, has done the international tour, worked with you know all the people yeah. to understand how true, I was like, oh, wow this really is like a work of genius. Like yeah. his really is a work of genius. And, yeah. and to, to un, try to undercut that or subvert that, I think is actually doing, um, you're partially doing yourself a disservice or you're just creating a challenge for yourself that I don't quite, that in other cases I would say is not yeah. as much a deal. It's just cause it, right. but it is so much a part of like every bit of this show. Yeah. And it's also interesting cause I feel like those collaborators really balanced each other out in a really effective way. Like Leonard Bernstein tends towards floweriness in other shows. He can he loves writing very poetic imagery. 
Um, Sondheim, I mean, Sondheim is very down on his own work in the show because I think he felt pressured. He was so young and knew that he felt pressured to kind of try to serve Leonard Bernstein's desire for poetry, whereas Sondheim himself is a very unflowery writer, so he feels a little... I feel pretty yeah, and witty. Yeah, he feels a little mawkish about very, it. Yeah. yeah, but in general, I feel like you have, you know, Sondheim's natural inclination towards something a little more simple and a little more kind of cutting, balancing out Leonard Bernstein's like all uber romantic poetry, and then you have Jerome Robbins doing this choreography that is violent, that is masculine in a way that's developing character. I mean, like yeah, they all—it's really phenomenal. Yeah, like I feel like there's there's ways that the show could have gone where it was kind of a parody because you had these like you know balletic dancers trying to mimic street violence, which you don't feel at all. I mean, they're really scary, these these characters, when you watch them move. So it's it, it manages to find a really nice balance between the kind of effusive, overly poeticness of young love that's in Tony and Maria, who like know each other for, what, 24 hours on the show? And then, you know, the scariness of teens who are in packs and they're violent and they're scary. Um, and the kind of like little tiny touch of uh, social commentary. Like I, I love that Officer Krupke's in there because I think it kind of gives you an insight into the, the larger world beyond it and the sort of futility of what what is being said about these kids to help them along. And you know, there's there's like a little bit of that view from the outside. Is it quite on the right thing? Not necessarily if you're gonna be dealing with racial issues, but you know, that's that is in there too, so it's a good balance. And that means it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about West Side Story. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in West Side Story? I mean, it's hard not to love Anita the most. I mean, I said it, but I also, yeah. my first inclination was Maria. Really? I love Maria. I do. I love an oh. I, I mean, you know I love an ingenue, but I yeah. love Maria. Yeah. Um, uh, but Anita is, I mean, there's a reason she's the one that always wins awards. And yeah. I, I mean, it's, come on, that, some of her scenes are phenomenal. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And I also like, I, I feel her absence at the end of that show. Because I feel like she, you've come to, to love her so much. And she's not present at that reconciliation when everyone's carrying Tony's body off and feeling bad about it. And like, she was almost just raped, raped. by these jets. I mean, and that scene is like Harrowing. horrifying. Yeah. It is, it is like, oof. Yeah. And Eva von Hova made it apparently more explicit, which no, thank you. It has, I mean, as time has progressed, that is what is nice about West Side Story. It has allowed, um, and just because of it, it was so ahead of its time. Like it has yeah. been like naturally kind of grown with the time or at least grown yeah. into itself a little bit more so that, now we live in a world where things are harrowing in musical theater and that's not a big deal. But like yeah. thinking about it, even we didn't talk about this in the other section, but like there, the, you know, like G officer Krupke, mm -hmm. Krupp U was uh, a substitute. It was blatantly a substitute because they were like the censors won't yeah, let yeah. us say another word. Mm -hmm. And like now look where we are now. <laughs> I um, so I, I, I think it's all just like that kind of evolution. I think yeah. Anita has only grown in depth and nuance yeah. in, over time too. Yeah. So, but also I feel like that's a good example of how you don't need to necessarily explicitly show on stage something. Like I feel like it, that scene is extremely harrowing without it having be, being a, an actual dramatic rape on stage. And so the impulse to like 
take it further. It's like, you don't need that. You don't need that. You, th there's plenty in that moment. It is terrifying enough. Um, but yeah, Anita is great. Um, and I, and to speak uh, on behalf of Maria, I just, I think her trajectory from young, innocent, um, yeah. you know, has just arrived and is going to her first party and wants the dress neck to be cut lower to then like where she is at the end as like this, yeah. you know, the, the journey that she goes on in that uh, 24, 48 hours, I guess. Yeah. No, it's, it's genuinely 24 hours. I think it's it? genuinely 24 hours. Um, uh, but the, that journey I think is really interesting. I think yeah. her monologue at the end is like, yeah. I, the, I think it's just haunting. And actually fun fact found out, I didn't realize this or I forgot it. That monologue that she wrote at the end is really dummy dialogue that Arthur Lawrence wrote in the hopes that, um, Sondheim and Bernstein <laughs> would write, it a, oh. write a song and then they never wrote one and the dummy dialogue just stayed. And I'm like, oh. I think it's great dummy it's dialogue. good dummy dialogue. But anyway, funny. I can kill now I because kill. I hate now. That's Side note, not what I often, like frequently, I yeah. do use that line uh, when I get frustrated about something. I'll be like, I can kill now because I hate now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you do dumb, like that. Dumb. Also, interesting that for a show that originated as a sort of Catholicism versus Judaism battle, uh, there's a lot of imagery of Maria as a sort of Mother Mary oh, Catholic yes. icon. You know, the last image of her is having the the shawl over her head and like this kind of religious figure. So yeah, just absolutely. That out there. Okay, so what's your favorite song in the score of West Side Story? Oh, I, there's a lot of songs I like in this score, and there's a few I don't um, love so much. There's, Ironically enough, I was gonna say there's one that I I don't I, I don't love. If it's the same one. One hand, one heart. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Boring. It's also, I will say, it's very hard to stage. Is it? It's hard to stage. Nothing happens. Yeah. Maria is kind of fine. He can park and bark. He can run around the stage. There's a famous story about like, yeah. um, about Jerome Robbins, like getting the lyrics for Maria and getting the song for Maria and him looking at something and be like, how am I supposed to stage that? What's he doing? He's yeah. like, well, he's singing. Yeah. But what's he singing about? Well, he met a girl. He loves her. How am I supposed to stage that? <laughs> <laughs> like anyway, but it's a great yeah. song and it kind of works. Yeah. But One Hand on Heart is like, it's just hard to, it's long, it's I find it lugubrious. a little bit. Oof. I also find it very ironic that it's so often used as a wedding song. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because obviously, I mean, obviously it is a, like, yeah. are, but it's also like, for me, you can't listen to that song without hearing like, only death will stop us well, now. Yeah. Even death won't stop us now. And I'm just like, to me, that's like a very foreshadowing thing to have at, at an actual human wedding. <laughs> right. Like, oh, love forever. <laughs> Until we die. Until we die. Which prob <laughs> probably will be in like 12 hours. You're right, truly. You know? So, yeah. That, that one, Somewhere, which is also not my favorite. Oh, I like Somewhere. Oh. I do. I, it's not my favorite. It's pretty. Although, shout out to my mom who's here in the audience, hey. who, when growing up and we were searching for a parking space in New York, would always sing, there's a space for us. That so. is good. <laughs> well, and my, my other fun facts, that's really good. That's really good. Um, <laughs> um, my other, like, somewhere fun fact, I love that the trains in New York, this is just a pure coincidence, oh, yeah. uh -huh. but if you ride the subway in New York, like, when the train starts going and you yeah. hear the, like, weird, like, high-pitched hum, it's yeah. like, beep, beep, beep. It's the same intervals that are at the beginning yeah. of somewhere. Yeah, so maybe that's it. We're just saturated. But there is dear. <laughs> anyway. Those two, and oddly enough, Officer Krupke, all began as songs from Candide. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, which I think you can really feel with one hand, one heart, 
and somewhere because Candide is a totally different sort of light sure. operetta parody of this kind of. But even Krupke, I can see that. Yeah, and it's like I guess it's sort of opera, yeah, the opera sort of, of it thing. all kind of. I get it. Yeah. Um, but so, what is your favorite? Oh yeah. <laughs> we just said what we didn't like. Oh right, that. Um, this uh, is true podcast recording yeah, where we're like, oh wait, what's it? What are this you is doing? real. Um, I love the quintet. I was gonna say that too. That was one of my options. Yeah, yeah. I just love it. I it's, do too. It's dramatically fantastic. The, the, it's so propelling. I always forget that it's not the end of the first act because it really should be the end of the first act. Um, it's the end of the first act in the movie, I think, kind of. I don't know if it is. Is it? I just watched it last night. I, just I think remember. it always kind the of The intermission of the movie comes a lot sooner than I expected. But oh, maybe. I also would, I don't agree that it should be the end. I think it's great as a propel to as the last propel. scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it's important that you have that death end act one. I guess it is. And I mean, the that's bell the toll. Like, I think that's, and then you start with I Feel Pretty and then it's like downhill from there. I feel like it's the kind of remnant of like musicals are actually three act plays. Yes. And so that's the end of the first act. Well, if the first act was. And Evo took out the act break, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know how one does that, but apparently he did. Well, there yeah. will be legs up, obviously. Um, yeah, I was going to say The Tonight Quartet or I love Dance at the Gym. Yes, me too. That was going to be my choice too. I love Dance at the Gym. And yeah. there's actually a really great video of, um, uh, and a symphony playing uh, oh. dance the gym for like a group of like kids at like a student yeah. matinee, and the kids like are like up out of their seats and dancing. They're so excited by the music, and it's like one of those videos that every time it comes across my feed, I have to watch it because it so just fun. makes you reminds you that there are good things in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Although notably, it is not a mambo. No. Which is kind of funny considering they just keep going mambo. Not a mambo. Um, that's the accurate way to do that. Yeah, okay, funny. That we, we have the same ones. That's yeah. cute. That's cute. Mm-hmm. All right, so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about West Side Story? Um, this is sort of only tenuously related. Um, and if, if, if we were going with dramatic moments, I would say that Arthur Lawrence changing that, that moment is my favorite because I think dramatically that does make a big difference. Um, but <laughs> actually what it is is that... Um, so I'm a big fan of The Muppets, and I grew up watching a lot of the Muppets. And the good part about that is that they're amazing. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to grow up on. The bad part of that is sometimes the Muppets would take numbers from shows and do their own versions of them. And it's hard to get that version out of your head for literally the rest of your life. And usually what they will take is like jazz standards or something and make them kind of creepy and sinister. Um, like, I've Got You Under My Skin is a monster eating another monster and singing to that little monster. Um, but it's the Muppets, so it's but fine. It's <laughs> but like, so, so there's a lot of songs that I'm like, oh, that's kind of a weird, creepy song, which is, it's not. It's just a romantic standard that they kind of did a dark spin on. But there was one that I loved when I was little of I Feel Pretty, and it's a beautiful Muppet uh, sitting in front of a mirror with the like two side flaps of the mirror, and there's like little other Muppets there. And as she's singing I Feel Pretty, she's taking off her pretty features and putting on monstrous features as these creatures on the side get even more um, kind of monstrous and sinister. So uh, that was something that I loved as a kid. But even to this day, 
I think of I Feel Pretty and I'm like, oh yeah, that song's kind of dark. <laughs> it's, it's not dark at all. I mean, you know. There's, Famously there's, not. Yeah. There's lots of discussion about it. I mean, Sondheim hates it because he feels like he tried to be clever in a way that those characters wouldn't have, have been clever. But um, That's why it works really nicely and partially in Spanish. Yeah, I would imagine so. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that's my that's my favorite. Thank you to the Muppets for making that song something totally different. That makes me think too. Um, I'm sure you have seen, but uh, if listeners and uh, to the program don't know, uh, there is like a 12 minute medley of West Side Story that Cher did entirely by herself oh, yeah. um, on TV in the 80s, and I it is wacky. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah, with like fake beard on. Yeah, to it's be tough. The shark, it's the, it's yeah. Cher. Anyway. Mm-hmm. We love share. It's giving. It's giving share. Yeah. Um, oh, my favorite miscellaneous thing though is I, I love I love the entire the Arthur Lawrence book, but the the line in Doc's drugstore when um, Doc is like lecturing the the kids on, you know, why can't you just go you know play in the playground? Why can't you just be normal kids like you know when I was your age? And I think it's Action who like immediately pipes back at him and goes. When I, when you was my age, when my father was my age, you was never my age. I just gave a line rating, but just the like, the pointedness of you was never my age, mm-hmm. which I, I get chills thinking about it because it's, of course, it's not true. Like, yeah, at one point, everybody yeah. was, but also like, you never quite know what it is to be a teenager and to be in this moment, whatever this moment is, and yeah. it is always so different for teenagers and they're also hormonally and crazy and you know whatnot but I think like that truth bomb has always kind of stuck with me yeah it's it's a really beautiful portrait of the agonies and frustrations of being a teenager well and even and the other the counterpoint the other like answer to that is in act two after they like basically rape Anita and Doc like yells at them all it's like what are you doing like you make this world lousy and I think again it's action who like pipes back and just says like that's the way we found it Doc which yeah. is like, whoo, yeah, tough, not wrong, but tough, tough. So I'm gonna go with the truth bombs in West Side Story. The truth bombs, yeah. I mean, that's that that what I that's what I think is really interesting there. I think I think it's a more compelling portrait of teenage life than it is a an attempt to be a portrait of racism. I think racism inflects it, but really that's where the heart of it is. And that will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So, obviously the show is a, a major masterpiece. It's one of the A-list classics. I, I think there's a case to be made that it's the ultimate musical in the sense that it is such a combination of all of the art forms together and they're all so um, dependent on the other that you can't, as we talked about, you kind of can't extract one element of it. Um, Some people really view it as the end of an era of musical theater. Other people view it as the beginning of another era of musical theater. But I I mean, it's obviously Sondheim's first big show. I mean, there are a lot of things that this this show does. Um, But what uh, what do you think is West Side Story's place in the musical theater canon? I mean, certainly what you said about uh, the role of dance in it is is at an importance that it's hard to match in terms of other shows. I mean, really kind of before or since. Like, it's hard to think of one that really uses dance 
in the storytelling so effectively and and in so effectively in terms of character building and shape you know all of that stuff so certainly that i mean it's interesting because i feel like it also in its portrayal of race in america i mean i think it goes into an interesting conversation about the many many musicals that deal with some form of the american dream and what the american dream is and who gets it which is really a lot of shows, a lot of art in general. In I would say a lot of plays. A lot of plays. Looking at you, Arthur Miller. I mean, yeah, seriously. So so I think it, it has to be considered one of the biggies in that canon. But I also find that, you know, as imperfect as it is in its portrayal of Puerto Ricans and a Latinx population, I think the conversation that has come from that um, has blossomed with its own fruit. I mean, you know, would Lynn Manuel Miranda have written In the Heights if he wasn't trying to see his people portrayed on stage without knives hurting each other as they do in, in this piece, as they do in The Cape Man, you know? Um, that, in some ways, he's talked about that is a response to this piece. So I think as a, as a part of a continuing conversation, it's it actually... Um, has been really interesting to 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 go forth in that discussion, um, and also just as an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, of which there are many, but this is certainly one of the Titanic ones that that looms large and sets it in a really interesting kind of new form. So there's, a, I think it, it has a lot of it looms large in a lot of categories. Well, it's also one of those shows that, like you know, you're at any dinner party with people who don't work in theater all the time, and you say, "I work in theater," and people go, "Oh." don't you just love West Side Story? And it's like, yeah, I do. I mean, but it's like, you know, it's one of those like easily, like everyone's yeah. kind of seen it um, shows. And I think, you know, people can tease about it or whatnot, but I think there is a general kind of even, I mean, I remember like watching it with my little brother who's like a very bro-y, like sports jock. I mean, he's one of those people can connect with anybody, but like sitting watching it, I was he was probably in like third grade, probably at like the height of his like Star Wars mania, and he was like, "Wow, this is really cool." Yeah, this is cool. I was like, "Yeah, Max, musicals are cool. Come with me. I'll show you more." <laughs> um, but like, it, yeah, it is a it is a, a hugely important gateway but also just like staple of what musicals can be should be and can do yeah and i think also i mean this goes to that point too but you know it's it is many things that people don't associate with ballet with musicals in general which is you know the darkness the violence the the performative masculinity to the point of toxic masculinity to some degree but like that the vigor and the lack of, I think people often associate, you know, dancing and musicals as being inherently kind of silly and inherently, um, there's something absurd about the idea of portraying and dance in a musical violence and gang warfare. And I think this show makes a large argument about that that is a foolish line to draw because they, they've captured that so beautifully in this show. It also does comedy very well too, in terms of like, yeah. it's still actually very funny and it's all comedy that's rooted in the situation. So it's not like topical jokes that yeah. make you laugh because it's 1957, like they're still funny because they're rooted in character yeah. and all that. So and that's not of, nothing, mm -hmm. frankly. So. And some fun new words. Frabber jabber. Frabber jabber. Um, 
so many. I can't think of any off the bat, but here we are. Okay. Well, that wraps up our deep dive into West Side Story. But first, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So, Annika, give us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. Well, it's not so much a show, but if the audience demands it, we were thinking of doing a sassy little Christmas episode. I think we should have to like bring in like our top five, like our ranked top five favorite Christmas shows or like songs or something. I think that sounds good. Well, it has been a lovely season of exploring classic yeah. musicals with you. We look forward to a season three. So indeed, uh, and and we've got some changes coming up that we, we will we will tell you about more in the, we certainly in the Christmas do. episode. We certainly do. Um, but until then. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.